Welcome to Trial by Data, presented by Litmus Health, a podcast exploring the data-driven technologies and strategies shaping the future of clinical trials. Each episode, we cover the most pressing issues and questions facing researchers and clinicians today in an ever-changing landscape. We're proud to feature leaders and innovators in the field who are at the forefront of developing and using these data-driven approaches. Welcome back to Trial by Data, the podcast where we talk about the future of data-driven clinical trials. I'm Josh Jones-Dilworth, joined as always by Dr. Sam Volchenbaum, co-founder and chief medical officer of Litmus Health. Today, we are delighted to host Esther Dyson, noted investor and executive founder of Way to Wellville, a nonprofit dedicated to investing in health. She's worked with multiple local officials on scaling local health initiatives in areas such as early childhood development, reduction in diabetes and obesity, and mental health support. We're excited to pick her brain about the social determinants of health and the merits behind putting capital into community well-being. Sam, Esther, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I want to kick off our intro segment called informed consent with the question you used to do what so we ask everyone to tell us about one of your first jobs whether it's in the industry or not how did you get started in the working world sam esther whoever wants to go first the the kind of version zero of my first job was when i was eight years old i produced the dyson gazette which was our family newspaper that was basically on paper with carbon paper. <laughs> and I love it. My real first job after being a proofreader for the Harvard Crimson in college was being a fact checker for Forbes. And I was there for three years. No matter what you're going to do in your later life, the ability to ask questions skeptically, to search for the truth, to you know, go out and I went and interviewed the, the CEO of American Motors, who, whose name I think was Roy Chapin, and they had this Pacer car, and he offered it. He offered me one for free to drive over the weekend. And of course, I'm a New Yorker, so I don't drive a car. But <laughs> I traveled all around the country. I visited biscuit factories and coal mines. And then I wanted to go visit Japan to write about the Japanese computer threat. And they said, well, we won't pay for you to go. And you've got to do it on your own time. You need to take vacation time, but we'll let you tell people you're a Forbes reporter, which was really a bad deal, but I took it. I paid for my own trip. That's a great deal at the right point in your career. Exactly. I mean, I still remember that. I spent three weeks in Japan, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan. I've always loved traveling. I've always loved asking questions. And I don't mind appearing stupid. And that's what I learned at Forbes. Sadly, the art of fact-checking seems to have gone out of style. Uh, yes. I, I like to say I'm, I'm an altar person in the religion of truth rather than the church of the media. I love it. I love it. Sam, what's your answer? What was your first job? Well, <clears throat> My dad, my dad ran a workshop for handicapped and um, and disabled folks in Highland Park, Illinois, and he had about 100 people working for him. And so, very, starting at a very young age, like at maybe sixth grade, fifth grade, he wouldn't let us have summers off. He would drag us in and make us work there. And at first, we just worked on the line with everybody else. 
um, you know, doing things with collating coupons for Walmart for Sears, you know, at you know at point oh one cents a piece. But eventually, uh, got uh, to be a supervisor there. And actually, what happened? What the reason it's relevant is that he gave me my first computer programming job. So I, I had uh, learned AppleSoft Basic, and uh, he needed someone to write a program that would take all of the mail and uh, and look up all the zip codes and do this automatic coding thing. And so I wrote him a program to do that. Uh, and uh, yeah, so my first real paid job was actually writing computer code back in 1981 when not many kids my age were doing that. Uh, and that really got me hooked on using computers as a way to do things faster. And uh, it never diverted my intention to go to medical school, but it always was a bug in my ear and it always nagged at me. And I think it's, it, it had a lot of impact on my decision to pursue data science and computer science as a way to enhance the medicine that I was practicing. Sam, tell Esther whose lab you were across the hall from in your time at University of Illinois at Champaign. Mm, I'm wondering who. I'm wondering too. <laughs> well, this is the Andreessen story, but maybe I got the details wrong. Oh, How do I prompt well, it wasn't, you better? It wasn't, it wasn't the lab. No. So, <laughs> so listen. So I was at University of Illinois. As, as it, This is 1990, and I was there as a pre-med because my parents basically told me since I was four years old that I had to go to medical school and be a doctor. So I never looked mm -hmm. at anything else. Um, uh, and, and so there I was in 1990, sitting there studying organic chemistry and in literally in the building next to mine on Green Street, Mark Andreessen was writing the first incarnation of NCSA Mosaic, like literally 50 feet away from me. And I wow. still give my parents a hard time to this day because I, to them, you know, medicine was the good old fashioned way that a Jewish boy should become a doctor. And uh, they didn't see a future in this computer stuff. And if I'd only if I'd only taken a different turn there, things could have been a lot different. And uh, and actually, you know, I, I corresponded with Mark about this one time. And he, um, it, you know, I think he probably um, uh, it probably made sense to him that uh, uh, I was studying medicine just 40 feet from him while he was inventing the very first browser. Pretty amazing. <laughs> That is amazing. Cool. Love it. My very first job as a young man in Baltimore, Maryland was on, on my 14th birthday, I got my work permit and I began work uh, three days later at the local Dunkin' Donuts where I learned wow. to drink coffee and go in the back and construct my own um, sinful delights uh, of my own design. And uh, yeah, never, never stopped liking donuts and never stopped liking coffee. Okay, so Esther, I want to, I want to kick off by asking you a little bit about the Wellville project writ large, but it strikes me as you know, such a long-term project. And yet we have this short-term crisis in COVID that is forcing change. And a recurring theme throughout the pod already this season has been sort of compressing years of evolution into months and in some cases weeks and, and, and observing the ways in which that's exciting and yet you know expressing some reservation or concern about whether those changes to our collective and industrial muscle memory will be made permanent. So I'm super curious to hear from you, how's Wellville going, but how does it also feel to be stewarding this long-term mission in the midst of a very acute crisis? Right. Uh so first, we're so lucky we started five years ago. We're not trying to start now because it's it's so important to be embedded in the communities we're serving, even though we don't live there. So Wellville is a 10-year 
five community nonprofit project. And each, each of those words is very carefully chosen. We're, we don't charge the communities, but we also don't give them stuff. We're not handing out money and making people do what we want. We're, we're kind of like a, an unpaid coach. And the communities, they own the ball, they own the court, they own the victories, but we're the, the coach on the sidelines saying, you know, maybe if you shot the ball that way, it would go slightly better, or maybe you and this other teammate should cooperate here. Uh, by the way, we know about some really great gym equipment you could use. And what we're trying to do, in essence, is not give them fish, not even teach them how to fish, but help them build their own fishing schools that will last. So when we leave in 2024, whatever they've built, it's theirs. And not only do they own it, but they built it for themselves. So what we're trying to get them to build is the foundations of a healthy community. So maternal health care, better schools, better child care, uh, better education so they can get good jobs and build their own communities and so forth. And the purpose of all this for the community, it's to build the stuff they're building. And for us, it's to scale not by growing Wellville, but by having other people copy what our communities are doing and to learn from them and for them to become famous. And, oh, you know, those people in Muskegon did that. We could do that, too. And I love it. I, I imagine six, six, success is probably not always obvious. So how do you track if the things you're doing in the long term are the right things? Well, fortunately, we have 10 years for things to show. I mean, yeah, numbers, we, we, have an, we have an outside evaluator who is now kind of collecting numbers and watching things. And I mean, we, we want to reduce the percentage of transitions to diabetes. We want to reduce the you know, number of mental health reported problems we want to reduce the maternal mortality rate. We want to make all those things you know, come together for black and white people, for rich and poor people, because there's a lot of inequity within these communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's not just improving the total numbers, but making everything more equitably distributed. But the real, yeah, the, the real success is going to be how many kids graduate from high school? How many kids not just stay off drugs, but have meaningful jobs? Do the real estate agents keep hiring more people because people want to come to these communities? Because, you know, somehow parents figure out this is a good rate place to raise kids or not. So we want to help people become more successful, but not become successful and leave, but become successful and, and build more locally. But you define you've defined the metrics of success because you said you use some subjective terms like live a meaningful have a meaningful job. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, imagine that that's always hard to do when you're designing an experiment, right? Right. I mean, you can look at things like income levels and percent of people who qualify for school lunches and and a lot of things. But you know, we we're not metrics driven. The moment you become metrics driven, you sort of start teaching to the test too much but certainly you gotta you gotta count things and it's just so often people count output like 
you know, we delivered 240 hours of classroom instruction and I want outcomes. Like how many of those people in the classrooms got better jobs? Who, what's, what's the tax base? Is it increasing? Are the teachers happier as measured by you know, retention rates? That kind of stuff. So I'm glad we've got 10 years because it's certainly not easy to do this short term. And so in the middle of coronavirus, we're trying to make sure that the stuff, I mean, there's food banks, there's a lot going on around schools. And what we're trying to do is make sure that what what they're building now is is not just an immediate response, but is also building capacity for the future like training more healthcare workers who can deal not just with COVID-19, but with providing healthcare beyond that. Uh, making sure the kids keep getting their education, that they've got internet access so they can keep learning and the kinds of things that have a long-term impact rather than just immediate. I mean, clearly people need to be fed and so forth, but our, our main focus is what's going to happen to the next generation. Will they be more successful than their parents? Success measured, not just economically, but in a lot of these other ways. And what are the cities, just so our listeners know them? Okay. Uh, so I'll correct you here there. The communities are Muskegon County, Michigan, which is the one that I work with most closely. Clatsop County, Oregon, which is northwest of Portland. Lake County, California, which is just kind of north of Napa Valley. And they're all kind of the forgotten, poorer places around the famous places they're close to. Muskegon is just west of Grand Rapids and just, it's on the shores of Lake Michigan. It's, it's stunningly beautiful, but it kind of hit hard times. And then there's Spartanburg in South Carolina. It used to have a lot of furniture manufacturing and, and again, kind of lost its middle class. Now they've got a number of car factories around, but it's still, again, a very divided, segregated community with with pockets of real poverty. And then, you know, also some better off people who are trying to do well and help help improve the community. And those are the people we're working with. How do you actually not give the community a voice but help the community to find its voice. And, and avoid that I mean, kind of Silicon Valley saviorism, right? Yes, and, and that sort of paternalism. I'm, so I'm in the south side of Chicago, and obviously ah, okay. the, fo the focus on the community is one, of the main, uh, is one of the main goals for the university and for the medical center. Um, yeah. you know, super high rates of diabetes, hypertension, teen pregnancy, um, uh, gunshot wounds. And, and I'm wondering- and, and vulnerability to COVID. And absolutely, because the, the majority of the deaths have been in, in a minority of the people that with low socioeconomic status, absolutely. And so the, one of the questions I had was, that, you know, we, we spend all day working on, in, on, uh, on ways to try to fix these problems, you know, automated uh, calls about your diabetes checkups and, and reminders on your phone to do your asthma spirometry. Those interventions can have, you know, short and long-term impacts, but they're very different than the interventions that you're making through your work. And I'm wondering 
how do you how do you change the mindset to something that's much more long term but potentially has a much much higher payout? That's the huge challenge because I, the way I like to describe life for almost everybody right now is the narrative arc has become an endless loop, and the this narrative arc is, you know, you're born, you become successful, you change the world, you die, you hand it off to somebody else. And the endless loop is you're stuck in what many of us feel we're stuck in right now. You know, just the days go one after another. It's all blurs day. You can't remember Mm -hmm. which day it is. (laughs) And, you know, especially it's like the extreme of this is addiction. Your, your endless loop of desire and you get the thing you wanted, but it doesn't give you relief. So you do it again and again and again, and your your world becomes more and more constricted on, you know, whether it's a drug or sex or, uh, you know, Facebook likes, or in the case of community organizations, they become addicted to short-term grants. And like it or not, the foundations kind of are enablers by providing only short-term grants. And this this whole cycle, people lose a sense of agency. They don't feel that what they do is going to make any difference. They don't, they don't see a future that's different from the past and they're stuck again in this endless loop. So getting them, you know, how do you help people see, have purpose? How do you help them understand, oh, an education is going to give me this narrative arc of getting a job and getting married and so much of this is tied up into the early childhood experience. So one thing we're, I mean, it sounds weird, but uh, if if I could actually, you know, had a billion dollars, I'd probably spend it on mandatory parent training, which of course would be totally contrary to everything. You know, people have to select it, but we try and work with the community as a whole to get them to see the long-term impact of what they're doing. Esther, I'm curious because, you know, when you started Wellville, this term like the social determinants of health uh, was not prominent. And now I feel like it's super trendy. Are we headed in the right direction or what are people maybe getting wrong from your perspective? You know, it's like racial equity. At least people notice it's important and they're talking about it. But we're still so far from achieving what we need to achieve. And you know, at least people now give it lip service. But the, the real, the real issue is, the shortest term people around are politicians and business people. You know, business people now look at their stock price day by day. Politicians look at votes, and they, they're focused on getting elected, rather than on, why am I running for office in the first place? I'm, you know, there are certainly exceptions, and the best politicians are running for office because, they want to help make things more positive. I won't get into a whole lot of politics, but you know, there's a mission there, not simply a desire to be. When a founder comes to me and says, I've always wanted to be CEO, mm-mm, I'm not going to invest in that one. Yeah. And you know, the same, I've always <laughs> wanted to be president or I've always wanted to be governor. It's a very bad sign. You, you should want to do X. And, you know, I think the best way for me to achieve X is to become a senator for my state or, you know, something like that. Uh, so we're, we're trying to help people, you know, and how do you do that? You do that 
by giving the parents a sense of purpose, by giving them the ability to communicate, by what you teach kids in school, by helping the parents themselves feel empowered and, and understand how to talk to their kids. And, you know, it's, but it's, it's a very big social change that, yes, you know, it's not take this course in racial equity or take this course in being a good parent and everything will be fixed. It's a journey. I wonder, so what do you think about this idea of sort of helping payers get to or pay for outcomes, whether that's BCBS or Medicaid or Medicare, like my payer would reimburse for the cost of a lift ride to get to the doctor or, you know, the cost of my monthly Vita subscription or whatever the example is. Is that a promising path to change? It's, it's definitely a promising direction. I mean, you know, there's short-term outcomes and long-term outcomes and, you know, having somebody spend less time in the hospital is good. If you look out 10 years and you see that the percentage of kids who drop out of high school is lower, that's even better. And, you know, part part of the problem is most of these outcome measures are, are kind of within one or two years, but it's a start. It's, it's definitely much better than we're going to pay you for how many times you see the patient versus how many times the patient doesn't need to see you. And totally. it's just... <laughs> You know, but it, there's still the problem of both short-term thinking and, well, I'm in healthcare. If I save the school system money, I don't get that money back. And so, that's why in the end you need to you need to put it into how the country and the government thinks, make them think longer term, rather than oh well, I'm not going to be in office by then, so I don't really care. You would have an answer for, you know, how to how to affect teen pregnancy, your answer would be much different than, I assume, a lot of physicians who would be much more proximal to the problem, and you would probably be thinking more distally back, right? It's not so much thinking back, it's thinking forward. You know, what is the long-term impact of what you're doing? And this is why it's worth paying for it, because 10 years from now, you're going to have fewer, happier babies, and you're going to have happier moms because they didn't get pregnant too early and... Mm. I see. Not be able to finish high school. So it's it's very much thinking forward to the impact. So that's really interesting. So instead of just saying, well, teen pregnancy is bad, period, you start you start the conversation by saying, if too many teens get pregnant, this is what we can expect over the next 10 to 20 years. And then yeah, or, you can get support for addressing the problem in the most sophisticated or the best way possible. Right. Or even if not so many teens get pregnant. This is how wonderful it's going to be. And by the way, even if you're a rich businessman, it means you're going to have better employees and you're going to have fewer people in your community using tax dollars to support women who can't work and so forth and so on. Well, it seems, I mean, it, it's so it's so aligned with your work with the Long and Now Foundation because it's, I mean, even in this case of teen pregnancy, even if you break it down in the most cold business-like way, and I look at the unit economics of teen pregnancy, like at some point, there's a, a break-even and a payout on a long-term solution and that, that can create incredible margins for businesses and incredible outcomes for communities. You just have to be willing to think on a long enough timeline. You need to, your underwriting timeline needs to be longer than it is in terms of, you know, compared to most interventions today. And for some reason, we're just not willing to do that. 
Yeah, I'll tell you an anecdote that may or may not fit in the podcast, but I was at a at JP Morgan at a breakfast meeting and there was a guy there from CMS, you know, the Medicare and so forth. And he talked about this whole issue around outcomes. And he said, Yeah, you know, we we are looking two or three years ahead in terms of the return on the things we're investing in with our patients and you know, what Medicare Advantage will pay for. So at the end of this, I said, well, you know, that's really great, but uh, why why not look seven or 10 years out? Because for some of these things, the returns are really huge. You know, is, is it legislation or, or what? Why, why can't you actually look genuinely long-term? And he said, you know, that's interesting. I actually, I don't really know why we don't. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it wasn't even, we're not allowed to. It's just like, it never occurred to us. We don't even ask why. It was. <laughs> that's interesting. And yeah, telling. Yeah. I mean, you know, even insurance companies, you know, this is one of the problems with health insurance. It's really not insurance. It's It's more like cost, cost sharing. Uh, but, you know, people do invest in 20-year bonds. And why can't they invest in 20-year returns on childcare or That's an education? awesome point, actually. It's an awesome point. We do invest in 20-year bonds. Like, it's not, a, it's not a totally foreign concept. Right, but there's a big leap between saying invest in 20-year bond and let's decrease the hypertension rate in 40 to 50-year-olds you know, blacks on the south side of Chicago, that that payout is obvious to from a medical standpoint, but I think it's much harder to see from a financial one. Well, it's 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 a financial one, but it's hard to see from the point of view of, hey, you know, it's not me. It's, it's yeah. someone else's taxes 20 years from now. It's and and that's the the challenge. How again, we, we have this quadrant chart we love on the lower left hand corner. There's all me right now. And it's, you know, the drug addict. And then upper left, there's the billionaire who gives the drug addict $1,000. And the drug addict goes in, and I'm using offensive words on purpose, mm -hmm. goes and spends it on drugs. And you then mean million, along, millionaire? That's your offensive term? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think billionaire is more offensive. Anyway, um, then there's the longevity billionaire who thinks long-term, but about himself. And then in the upper right-hand corner where every quadrant chart wants to go, there's long-term thinking about all of us, you know, my family, my community, people of color, people from other countries, and basically the public welfare. I love that. Hey, a bunch of our listeners, um, you know, they're kind of nerdy about clinical trials and clinical studies and the future of all of it. I'm really curious to know, like, if I gave you, if I, I'm a genie and I gave you, you know, $20 million to, to, to fund, you know, you had to have a study or a trial. An RCT, um, yeah. Do you, do, do you have in mind what you would go study, like, to, you know, to sort of move this conversation forward? Well, I mean, in, in one sense, Everybody knows in quotes that this this works. Um, I mean, basically, that's what we're doing. We're spending it probably will be twenty million to show what happens when you just start to try and do this stuff. the 
the rest of the country in some way as a control. I mean, it's it's very messy. There's nothing like identical twins. But right, but you're you're uh, running sort of a real time, unstructured, distributed clinical trial in a sense using scientific right. method. Yes, scientific method. You know, some people would think that was offensive for us to claim that, but we're <laughs> we're definitely we're watching what we're doing. We're talking about it. We're analyzing ourselves. When we write the story, certainly the the interruption, whatever it ends up being, of COVID nineteen will be part of it. You know, some things it accelerates, and it's certainly accelerating attention to the disparities and the vulnerability. But it's also, you know, stretching the capacity of the country and and of our poor communities in particular. It'd be interesting to see which of these accelerants remain. You know, I, I, I see a lot of this at the hospital here where the IRB approves things much more quickly and we get studies yes. started more quickly. Um, all of a sudden, it's okay to do our exams on Zoom and Medicare pays for them, yeah, uh, which, they, which they never would have dreamed of before. So I wonder yes. what your thoughts are about what we're going to see continue versus what might revert back once this crisis is yeah. over. I mean, I think, you know, the adoption of telehealth, it's, it's, it's accepted. It's, you know, it's nice to go see a, a real doctor, and I'm sure people will, but so many things, you know, there was the house call, then there was you go to the doctor, and now there's telemedicine. And in each case, it's not all or nothing, but telemedicine just makes so much more sense for so many things. And that that's very exciting because telemedicine you know, nothing is ever equal, but it's it's a lot cheaper than going to the doctor. It's a lot more convenient for the patient. And, you know, to the extent it provides benefits, it can provide those benefits and those outcomes we're talking about more cheaply. Uh, the challenge, again, is making sure that poor people have access to quality Zoom calls and don't get forgotten. But the, the acceleration of some of this more efficient, more productive healthcare is, is really exciting. And people's familiarity. There's also this, this strange um, hierarchy that persists. I mean, I think you've seen this recently, right? So you, you go to the doctor, you sit in a room, you wait, there's like this formality to it where you can't sort of burst into the doctor's sphere. It's yeah. like some sort of private thing. And and maybe because I'm a pediatrician, we, we do a lot less of that. And I, I give out mm -hmm. my cell phone number to many of my patients. Maybe yeah. this telehealth trend will maybe decrease those barriers a bit and make people feel more like they're in a partnership with their physician and they have a, a different kind of relationship with them. For the doctor to see you as a human being, for you to feel not that you're kind of like visiting your congressperson, but you know, visiting someone who's there to help you, it, it just changes the dynamic and medicine has become a production line. And to the extent people feel more comfortable talking online, this, this may change it some, or, you know, yeah, I can just text my doctor with a small question. But, but it's interesting, Esther, that we're, this is all going to become very real because the more we put wearables and sensors and apps on, on people and connect them to their clinicians and their caregivers, they're going to have much more ready access so yes. do we risk do we risk sort of a swing in the other direction where 
um, where people, where, where we lose people, there's all these false positives or people are just contact, like how do we maintain some sort of sense of, of boundaries if we need to? Um, you know, there's some problems that are never solved. They're just addressed. And it's, it's that, that is going to be, I mean, false positives is one of the, I'm, I'm also an investor in a company that does full body scans. And the moment I mentioned that yeah. to my sister, <laughs> you know, she kind of looked at me and, you know, right with a little bit of scorn, he said, false positives, false positives. And um, I mean, false positives is a human problem, not just a medical problem. Some people worry it's a, about it. It's stuff a medical legal, it's a legal problem, which is part of the issue. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that, yeah. you're right. And that is, that is a real problem. And the, the over testing, because I don't want to, I don't want to under test. Right. And the fact that people are also overtested because they're they see ten doctors and you know none of their data actually gets shared with the other doctors. They get three medications that are contraindicated yep. because they get them from different doctors. And yeah, I mean, I was in I was in two Mount Sinai facilities, and they don't even use the same medical records. Oh, of course not. They're incentivized yeah. not to because that makes it too easy to switch hospitals. You know, no, we, no, no. They're both Mount Sinai properties. That's that's <laughs> that's even worse. Before we get into the rest of the episode, we wanted to take a quick break with our co-founder Daphne Kiss in a segment called "The Dose," where Daphne gives us her take on the freshest news from the pharma industry. Daphne, take it away. Hi, everyone. So, COVID nineteen, of course, has raised the question of both who is susceptible, given people are asymptomatic, and who has gotten the vaccine. So the vaccine has unleashed a whole other set of conversations that apart from people trying to game the system in order to get the vaccine, then there's the question of authenticating and verifying that someone has actually gotten the vaccine. And so this, um, you know, it relates to devices, it relates to the idea of, of digital tattoos, which uh, actually seem to be something that will, I think, become more central uh, in probably because of COVID perhaps sooner than it might have otherwise, where identification and verification is not self-reported information, but rather that it's um, something that happens um, just as part of your biometric system. And devices will still matter for a whole other level and nuance of both passively collected and and uh, and patient or participant related. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the dose today, and we'll see you soon. We're closing in on time, and one of the things I want to ask Esther is really just about the future. I mean, you've made a career of being ahead of the curve. I think Wellville is just the latest example of it, you know, your gold, I think, in many ways is recognizing patterns and thinking long term. And I know that our listeners, you know, would love to hear sort of what you're thinking and what you're prognosticating specifically about maybe it is COVID or the future of healthcare in general. Is there anything on your mind? And, you know, you can take a minute to think about it. Um, that's sort yeah. of 
um, hot takes or predictions that you feel pretty confident making? Well, the, the biggest challenge for, for what I do is, is how to not confuse prediction with desire. And, you know, I know what I want to have happen. Will it happen? <laughs> Depends so much on, are we going to get grownups in charge anytime? This, yeah. this short-term thinking is now endemic in, you know, not just in parts of our government, but also in the people who don't wear masks. And honestly, in, in the millions of people who have been raised in conditions where they lack resilience and don't have the capacity to manage their own health so that they've, they're so disparately vulnerable to something like COVID-19. And mm -hmm. we should be taxing sugar. We should be subsidizing childcare. And those are investments. Those are not spending. We, we talk about so many things. We confuse investment with spending. So if we're smart, if you all listen to me, things are going to be great. <laughs> Is there anything you're pessimistic about these days besides the upcoming election? Anything that, that's got you down from time to time? Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic about the upcoming election. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm pessimistic about how, how poorly we have, as a country have, have rallied in the face of these problems. I'm, I'm devastated by what's happened to Hong Kong, which is something entirely different. But I mean, what we're seeing is stupidity causes real damage. It, it ends lives. It foreshortens other lives. It, it damages people. And we have to start being smarter. We have to start thinking longer term. We have to think about society around us, not just ourselves. Esther, do you, do you think that the the public, uh, you know, the significant portion of the public that is doubting science, is that something that's new, or do we just hear more about it these days because of easy access to information? It's. I think we hear more about it these days because it is so injurious to us. I mean. It, in the past, it didn't matter as much if, if people thought the earth was flat, you know, they didn't jump off the edge. <laughs> um, but to think that, to think that you can't catch a disease because it's a stupid disease, you know, it's, it's like. Or that a mask is gonna hurt you somehow. Yeah, and so it's causing real injury both to the people who are behaving badly and to those around them, and especially to the vulnerable. To the people that are fostering this, and whether it's uh, you know foreign agents or whoever, but the people that are fomenting this, this uh, f you know, people being frightened of vaccines and microchips, what, what do they get out of it? What's the um, payoff? So if you're a foreign government, making the US look bad is in many cases, the point. It's, you know, they don't care whether it's Trump or Biden. They just want the people to be stupid and do stupid things. I mean, it's it's much more about disruption. To the extent that the U.S. interferes outside its borders, have, and that's another burning political question, at least usually they're trying to build something. But 
a lot of the interference now is simply trying to destroy the other countries so that you look better. And that's another tragedy. I mean, our problem is cynicism and, and despair and you know, lack of trust. It's, it's not who wins, it's that whoever wins isn't trusted. Hmm. <laughs> I love that. Scott Galloway wrote this fabulous post back in May that was definitely optimistic. The title of it was Corona as Vaccine. And, you know, the, the sort of premise was that this is a test and that, you know, mm -hmm. maybe when this pandemic ends, we might sort of emerge with a stronger global immune system. And I, I worry so. that we're, we're not. But, you know, I think that's the ultimate, you know, like... Um, optimist, you know, position to take, which is yes. that, that this sort of the good and the bad of it got us ready for the much bigger crises that are to come. Yes. Can we learn? Can we learn? Very well put. I want to close with um, just a question as part of our, we call it our double blind outro segment. And I always like to ask um, a question of our guests. And so here it is. Um, Esther okay. and Sam, you, you get to ask the answer to these questions week to week as well. So um, be ready too. Esther, what is an opinion that you hold that most people in your industry or our industry would disagree with? On what topic or what issue do you find yourself most often at odds with others? And where are you a canary in the coal mine? Um, I mean, it's this whole, this, this may be no longer so widely held, but just this veneration of innovation of startups. You know, I care more about implementation than innovation. I don't think being CEO mm. is, is the point of a career. Achieving something through being CEO is the point of a career. Yeah, that there's, we see that a lot too. It's like um, follow through, implementation, precision of operation. Um, it's in, it's, it's, it seems that it's in short supply a lot these days. There's a lot of great ideas and gosh, I see a lot of incredible, genuine scientific breakthroughs. Um, but the number of them that are sort of meticulously implemented over a period of time are, are rare and I, maybe even increasingly rare. I tend, to, I, shouldn't, I tend to share that belief of yours. That's very interesting. Sam, what about you? You know, I, again, I don't know how how controversial this is, but I think it's relatively <laughs> controversial. I think I, I think one of the issues is that people think that technology is going to save healthcare and save research and save data sharing. And what I've learned over the years is that is that the answers are are much more social and political. You know, my yes. group works on better ways to share data, and we actually don't we don't do a single line of code for usually almost a year a year into the project after we've spent time working getting buy in getting leaders to agree getting people to share um, once we accomplish that the tech is almost i mean my programmers will hate it but the tech is almost commoditized at that point and i think more people are starting to buy into this and i think Esther, i think this is one of the things you profess too is that the technology is not the answer it's just a, it's just a tool yeah getting people to use the technology effectively is the challenge. We, we call that the shiny object problem. So yeah. it happens all the time. Somebody comes to me and says, have you seen this new tool that can do X, Y, and Z? We need that. 
And I say, we don't necessarily need that. You need to decide what we need to do. And then let's look at the landscape of available solutions and pick the best one for what we need to accomplish. And it's the reverse yeah. that people usually want. They want to buy the new shiny toy that just came out. Yeah. Yeah, I have this great product as opposed to, I have a problem I want to solve. Let's figure out how. Exactly. I hope that the following opinion I'll give you is becoming more mainstream as well. You know, I would always have an argument with folks about um, how we should pay teachers a lot more. And now as you see mm-hmm. parents like clamoring to get, take my kids out of my darn house, you know, which I think is sad, but yeah. um, you know, we don't, we don't pay teachers enough. We don't pay nurses enough. Um, there's here, a lot here. of workers, I think, who are who are carrying the the disproportionate majority of the burden um, of the last nine months, and I, I hope that culturally we decide to reward them um, and sort of recognize them with pure, cold, hard American Benjamins, um, yes. you know, more proportionally to their value to society. And uh, I love to get in that fight with people. And again, hopefully, I'm not in the minority anymore. But um, yeah, we should pay them more and more often, and yep. protect them and honor them. And we should invest. And we should invest. I love your point about the sugar tax being in it. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Esther, for joining us today. We really appreciate you. It was a fabulous conversation. That was great. Me too. It was great. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Trial by Data presented by Litmus Health. If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on SoundCloud and visit our blog at litmushealth.com.